As Mike mentioned, we're continuing in a series on uh, Readview's statement of faith. I don't know if you've ever seen that or if you're familiar with the term, but basically uh, on our website, also there's pamphlets outside uh, on many weighty topics of the Christian faith. Uh, Readview Bible Chapel, the leadership here has seen fit that we write down kind of where we stand on them. And in the last few weeks, we've been working through a session on God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit. And then this morning, uh, Lord willing, we're going to be looking at uh, the Bible, God's Word. Uh, I guess somewhat ironically, or, or maybe not so much, but everything we know about God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we are indebted to the fact that God saw fit to write it down in His Word. It's been said uh, from Romans chapter 1 in the Bible, it talks about how the evidence of creation around us speaks to the fact that there is a higher being, there is a creator, there is a God. Um, in fact, to deny that, we'd have to be willfully ignorant. In other words, you, you want to not reach that conclusion, and you, you can distract yourselves perhaps. But there's, there's plenty of evidence around, there's somebody greater than us, and uh, so many things lined up that it couldn't simply be chance. However, evidence for creation doesn't tell us what God is like other than the fact that he is a supreme being with amazing power that could create these things. It doesn't tell us what he loves or what he doesn't love, why he did some of these things. You see, for that, the testimony of creation is enough to tell us there is a God. Uh, but the testimony of God's word is that we can know that God, and he, he wants us to know him and reveal those things to us. So uh, let me put up on the screen for you the uh, statement of faith for read of you. Let me read it for you. The, the Bible is the verbally inspired word of God, verbally inspired by God, inerrant in the original documents and the sole authority in matters, matters rather of faith and practice. Now within that sentence, there's kind of three big uh, segments there and we're gonna unpack each of them uh, together this morning. The first being verbally inspired by God and what that means. And the second, inerrant, in the original documents, and finally, the sole authority in matters of faith and practice. So for the first one then, that uh, verbal inspiration. Now what that simply means is that, uh, well, the verbal, if we unpack it that, it, maybe you think about someone talking, and that, that's kind of the idea. It means the words. It means the words that we find in the Bible matter. It's not simply a, a collection of thoughts or nice ideas. God literally wants the words to be the way they are, verbally. Now, inspiration, what does that mean? Well, to, to be inspired, you're, you're stimulated to do something. You're, you're, there's some force driving you. And in this case, it's God's Holy Spirit, who we would say is inspiring writers to write down the Bible. Now, the greatest evidence I can give you for the inspiration of the Bible it is not me talking on and on for hours about how amazing it is, but just to step back from that for a moment and think about one example. Let's suppose we went to some place that we commonly go. I don't know, Walmart, grocery store, something like that. And uh, let's find 10 random people who live in the same era, i.e. today, and presumably we could communicate in the same language if we found 10 people of such. And uh, we'd be familiar with similar traditions and culture and so on. Even though we may not all practice the same ones, we'd at least be familiar with them. So same era, same language, same culture, 10 people, and let's imagine we tried to write a book about something important like the meaning of life. And each person gets one chapter, and we make a 10-chapter book, and we put it together. 
Now, what are the odds that that thing would flow very, very smoothly? Well, it's next to zero. And the reason for that, and I see a few smiles, you can imagine what I'm getting at here, is that we all have different opinions and thoughts. Even though we have 10 people from the same time frame, the same language, and, and mostly the same culture, we differ wildly in something like that. And you would feel one thing and I would feel another. The book would be a disaster. Now, God's word wasn't 10 people. In fact, from what we understand, it, it was 40 different writers, not from the same time period, from what history would tell us actually over about 1,500 years. So centuries passed from the beginning of it written to the end of it being written, not of one culture, not of one job. There were some who were kings, who were writers, and some who were shepherds and farmers. Others were fishermen, some worked for the government, some were doctors. All of these different backgrounds, all of these different cultures spread over 1,500 years, not in one language, in three major languages, Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek. And yet, despite all of that, we couldn't, in our own time frame with only 10 people, make a coherent book. The evidence of inspiration, in other words, something behind those 40 people over all that time and languages and so many things against it, yet the book flows with a coherent message. That in itself is perhaps the greatest evidence for the inspiration of Scripture. Now, a bit more on what it means. I picked out two verses from the Bible. Hopefully they show up there okay on the screen. You can see the words, and I know some people will be listening to this after, so I'll read them for you as well. And in uh, 2 Peter 1.21, we read this. Holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. And 2 Timothy 3.16 says, all scripture given by inspiration of God. Someone said, and I rather like this quote, the word of God, it's the Bible is the word of God in the words of people in history. I've often wondered, you know, why didn't God simply just write a book in heaven and drop it down on a cloud to earth? Like, why even involve people to begin with? We're going to be the problem with this thing. Why didn't he just do that? Well, and if you were there, let's say it happened 2,000 years ago when Jesus was in the world. Boom. Dropped on a cloud, and there was the word of God. Like, that'd be pretty amazing if you saw it. But for us today, we'd be left with the same problem, wouldn't we? We'd have to trust, believe that, yeah, that was the word of God. Like, we didn't see it, we didn't feel it, we didn't handle it. So whether it was written by God or written by a man inspired by God, ultimately, for you and I today, nothing would be different. You say, well, he could drop a new one every day. Well, I could. You, you could take it to ridiculous extremes. The point being, ultimately, you have to reach a point of, do you or do you not trust that it is what God said? The testimony of God's word itself, he says, Holy men of God spoke or wrote in the context of the passage, same idea, as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. Well, what, that, what does it mean? It means God filled those, those men as they were writing these letters. They didn't set out to write a Bible. I don't know if you're aware of that. They, they wrote letters. Many of these were either recorded history or letters to other churches. They, Paul, uh, he would be inspired by God to write a letter to a church at Colossae that were studying the book of Colossians on Tuesday evening. He didn't write it down with the knowledge, boy, 2,000 years ago, people at Readerview are going to be reading this. No, he was, he was addressing specific problems in a church there. God filled him with the words. He wrote the letter, and we saw, hey, this is, this is good. And as we study it, we find that, guess what? The same problems facing people 2,000 years ago face us today. We're all cut from the same cloth. There's nothing new under the sun. Maybe we have a, a cell phone in our pocket and a bit more technology, 
But the struggles and the challenges that God's word addresses are exactly the same as they've always been. So that's the inspiration. They're filled with the words. The second verse there, all scripture given by inspiration of God. And the importance of that one, I would draw your attention to those first couple verses, all scripture. You see, the scripture from beginning to end, it's not a case where you find a passage that you like. And you say, well, I can see how this is inspired by God, but you know, this doesn't really apply today because we've evolved or civilization has changed. So that we're just going to, we're going to put that in the past and say it's not relevant for today. The scripture would say we really can't do that. We've got to be really careful when we're dicing and slicing God's word like that. You know, the testimony is that all scripture, the entirety, it gives it equal authority. And one last thought before we move on to the second point about this verbal inspiration. I don't know if you've ever been involved in a, a business deal or something large. You're purchasing an appliance or a car or a house or something like that. Probably you ended up in a point where you had a contract. There was terms where somebody owed you something and you owed them something. And, and maybe someone said, well, you know what, we need to write this down. And why, why do we like to write agreements like that down? We do it because it commits two parties, right? We can't just come back a year later and say, well, I remember it a bit differently than you. No, 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 let's, let's look at the document. What did it say? That was the agreement. Could I say this? By God writing his word down in a fixed book that hasn't changed, God is committing himself as much as us. Like, God can't come around next year and say, well, actually... I'm going to change the terms a little bit. No, no, no. We have a Bible that hasn't changed. So as much as it is a blessing for us to be able to read God's word, God writing it down commits him too. He cannot lie. He cannot change. The agreement that he made, the statements that he made are with us from now forever. And so that's actually a comfort as well. Just as it's nice to have that document in writing, put it in writing. Well, God put it in writing. And so we can trust what he said. So now what did he say as we move on from verbal inspiration? Well, the second aspect of our statement of faith, verbally inspired by God, second one was we said it is inerrant in the original documents. That sounds very technical. Uh, inerrant simply means without error. It's, it's flawless. There's no mistakes in it. Um, okay, well, that's good. If, if we're going to trust this is God's word, I, I hope we would feel that that's the case. But then in our statement of faith, we have that little that, uh, suffix there tacked on to the end, inerrant in the original documents. What does that mean? Is, is this Bible I have here, is this an original document? Well, I don't know if you've ever thought about it or not, it's actually not. This Bible I have, I happen to have a King James translation of a Bible here, and the Bibles in front of you are different translations and so on. In fact, it is a translation of a copy of the original document. And so, we're left to wonder, well, is what I have, because remember, I said three major languages, and notice I didn't mention English. English didn't even exist when the Bible was being written in Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek. So we are grateful for people who understand those languages, but if, if you are bilingual here this morning, you would understand that translation, even in simple things, is very, very challenging. There's many phrases, or just, just an expression you might use in your native language that doesn't really translate that well into other languages, and you lose some of the meaning along the way. So all that to say, inerrant in the original documents, what we need to wrestle with this morning, is the Bible that you have in front of you accurate? Is it sufficient? Is it good uh, for good enough for what we see? So 
The, the Bible, I don't want to get too deep into this because I'm certainly not an expert, but uh, the King James Bible that I referenced before was, was written in 1611. Uh, a man, no surprise, King James. He had power, he had authority, and he said, we need a Bible that the people can understand. He commissioned really smart people to study the, those manuscripts and put together a Bible in the English language. As time went on, that, that came to be known as the received text, the collection of manuscripts that combined, uh, comprised the King James. As time went on, more manuscripts were found as we're digging these things up, and, and they found that there was a, another set that was older, and then if you had the responsibility of translating the Bible, here's a dilemma for you. Which ones do you, do you use? Because they're a little different. Is it the ones that are older, but you have fewer of them, or the ones you have many, many more of, meaning they were much more in use? More or older? Well, hard to say, and perhaps the more important question is, is there any difference? Well, if you happen to have an ESV Bible with you today, a great Bible, nothing wrong with that, it was based on the other set of manuscripts. And there's actually 18 verses in that ESV Bible that you will not find in a King James Bible. So we need to sort this out this morning because otherwise, what are we doing here? Like, which, what is the Bible? There's so much confusion. You know, you can find people who want to, want to pick things apart, want to pick fights, and you can find websites filled with these things. What I want to show you this morning is that actually... The Bible that you have in front of you, whether it's a King James, ESV, or many other uh, versions, is exactly what we need to understand what God's Word is. Uh, up in front of you, and again, if you're listening and don't have the PowerPoint, I apologize, we're looking at two passages here, Matthew chapter 18, verses 10 through 12. The one on the left is based on the, that received text, the King James, New King James, so on, and uh, the one on the right, ESV, the critical text. Now, if you had an ESV this morning and I asked you to read Matthew 18, verse 11, you'd be pretty excited because you'd get there and say, hey, I don't have to read anything. Because notice, verse 11 does not exist in the ESV. And there's 18 of these such verses, such discrepancies, if you will. And the verse that I've highlighted there for you on the screen from the New King, Matthew 18, 11, the Son of Man has come to save that which was lost. The Son of Man was the preferred title for Jesus. And so he's speaking of himself and talking about his mission. This is kind of a big deal, isn't it? Because he's saying, this is why I'm here. I'm come to look for people, men, women, boys and girls, who are lost. And if he didn't come to do that, we'd want to know. So, so which one's right? Well, let me turn you to another passage to explain why I don't get too concerned over this. Luke chapter 19. So now we're in another narrative, uh, the story of Zacchaeus. And guess what? Luke 19 and verse 10, in both Bibles we read, the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. So here's my point. I don't know which set of manuscripts was closer to when, in this case, Luke, or in the previous case, Matthew, wrote that original document. We refer to those as, they call them the autographs. The original writing, quill to scroll, or whatever it would have been, uh, back in the day. I don't know which one was accurate for Matthew 18, verse 11. To be perfectly honest, we don't know. But here's the point. As we step back and look at the entirety of God's word, there is no truth that falls to the ground. You can go through 18 of those verses, like I said, those discrepancies. All of it is found elsewhere in scriptures or it's truth that was explained in other ways. Point being, that translation over thousands and thousands of years is a very challenging part, and I'm sure the devil would have loved to get a hold of the weakest link humanity in translating this thing but at the end of the day that bible you have in your lap or on your phone or in whatever format you have 
is totally sufficient to find God's truth. And so don't get too tripped up on these things. You know, I love those websites because they, they'll point out the 18 differences. Let's talk about the 10,000 verses that are the same and the weighty things that we need to deal with there. No one wants to confront matters of conscience and things that perhaps make us feel awkward. We love to find excuses that trip us up. I'm telling you, I'm trying to equip you this morning to not get tripped up on that. So that's why in our statement of faith, we don't say the Bible simply is inerrant. Because that opens up to, to criticism. Someone turns to this verse, well, what do you say there, read of you? Well, what we say is in the original document as it was penned, that was inspired by God and inerrant. No errors. Unfortunately, as time goes on, there are these discrepancies. And we can sit down. If, if it's a big problem for you this morning, we'll sit down with you for hours and we'll talk about each of them. What I, I want you to understand is that the Bible you have is sufficient and trustworthy to find our truth. Now, in this next section, I, I don't want to spend too long on this because, again, I am not an expert. I've sat under messages that try to go into this in detail, and frankly, I, I end up finding it very boring, to be perfectly honest with you. But I do have three of these snippets on the screen because I think it's worthwhile to at least make mention of them. So the, those originals, maybe you're wondering, okay, inerrant in the original documents, well, where are they? Where are they? Well, we don't have them. They're gone. And maybe you're thinking, well, that's kind of too bad. Like, what, why, did, why couldn't God have preserved those original documents? We put them in a museum somewhere. Wouldn't that be great? Well, you know what? I know the heart of human men and women as God does. And you know what? If we had that original letter, that original thing that Paul had written down, put in a museum somewhere, you know what? It would become an idol. We'd worship it. It would become a popularity contest in this room. Well, have you gone overseas and seen the original letter that Paul wrote to the Colossians? Oh, you haven't? Well, I have. Maybe you should. Maybe, that, maybe you're missing out on something in your Christian. You see how it would become this competition? It would devolve totally away from learning God's word, and it would become a popularity contest. So I think God in his wisdom said, forget it. They're gone. You've got what you need. But at the same time, there are really amazing findings and manuscripts that have been found. Perhaps you've heard of the Dead Sea Scrolls. In fact, they were in Ottawa in 2004. Uh, I don't even know where they are now in their entirety, but they, they travel the world. The story is this. It's the entirety of the Old Testament, except for the book of Esther, for whatever reason, but all the other books are there. They were found in a cave in Qumran, and they date to the first century, like 2200, 2100 years ago preserved in their entirety. And as historians study these, they're like, wow, the Bible we have today matches up exactly in the Old Testament with what we had a couple thousand years ago. It's really encouraging to my faith that we found this. The second one there, the Kedef Hinnom Scrolls, that middle picture, that's them. Not a whole lot there. If you were to find that under your couch at home, you'd probably throw it out. But let me explain to you why it's significant. In that scroll, it contains a small fragment of Numbers chapter 6. Interesting, whatever. Um, but it dates to 7th century B.C., 700 years before Jesus was in the earth. If you remember some of the narratives of the Old Testament, one of the, the most important events of the Old Testament was the captivity of Jerusalem, where Babylon came, 586 B.C., wiped it out, carried all the, the Jews, including Daniel and so on, away. Uh, and maybe you're familiar with the narrative, maybe you're not, but it's a, it's a pivotal point of the Old Testament. That was written 100 years before that even happened. And we have it. Like, it's here today. It's just more evidence that what we have is accurate and true. And the last one, the only reason I share that, it's a small fragment, again, tiny scrap of paper uh, from Mark, from the New Testament. But I share it because it was found in 2011. 
It's encouraging for me that these things weren't all found 100 years ago. Probably everyone in the room was alive in 2011. So we're still unearthing evidence that's showing that the Bible you have in front of you is accurate and, and far more important, sufficient to understand what we need to do with our lives. Okay. The third of those statements in the statement of faith was this. The sole authority in matters of faith and practice. To me, this is by far the most important of them. Because if the content of this book was irrelevant to my life, who cares how many scraps we found in the desert or, or how old they were or any of that stuff? It doesn't change my life one bit. But we at Read of You Bible Chapel believe that this book is the sole authority for all matters of your life, how you practice faith, and how you practically, we love to use that word, practical teaching, how you live and exist and interact with people on a daily basis. It is uh, the, the, uh, the manual, if you will. So uh, authority, I, I love reading this verse. Let me read from 1 Thessalonians 2. Paul, when he came to a church at Thessalonica, said this. He said, when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you received it not as the word of men, but as it is in truth, the word of God. You see, by saying that, Paul was commending them. He said, when we spoke, remember, Paul didn't have a Bible. He had the Old Testament scriptures at that point, but what we consider the New Testament were letters that he wrote to churches. He showed up and he spoke and he says, you treated God's word seriously. I hope today, I hope this morning, that uh, as we're listening, the most important things that will be spoken this morning will be the scriptures and God's word. I am endeavoring, as God is giving me ability, to explain and to help us to understand what they mean. But all of that stuff fades away. What is important is what God said. And that church at Thessalonica took it seriously. It was on another category. It, it was different than listening to a newscast or reading a newspaper or reading news on your phone or whatever way you're consuming information today. God's word, it says, is on a whole other level. And I, I fear sometimes we can almost bring God down to our level. And when we're treating it, we're like, oh, that's interesting. And then we're reading some silly news story about something entirely inconsequential next. And I'm not saying I'm above that. I'm saying I'm just as guilty. But it's a reminder for us that what's spoken in here is authoritative and is important and should be placed on that level. Now, the challenge for me when I read this statement, sole authority in matters of faith and practice, is my mind, maybe it's just the way I'm wired, I immediately think of, okay, well, then it's it's a reference manual. That's good. You know, uh, at the end of the year, I, I like to put my uh, lawnmower away, and maybe I got to go, go to the shelf and find the reference manual so I can figure out how to change the oil or change the filter or something like that. It's, it's something that every once in a while I got to go look up, have to do, and then I forget how to do it for the rest of the year, and, and we go back and forth. And I suppose we could treat God's word that way, and, and there are times where something happens in your life, like, I wonder what God wants me to do, open up his word. That's not how God envisions us treating his Bible. It's not a reference manual on the shelf that in case of emergency, you go find that Bible, let's open it up and see what it's about. No, it is meant to be on a daily, on a moment-by-moment -moment basis, God's word guiding our thoughts, guiding our actions. Tim uh, shared a wonderful message last week on our, our statement of faith on the Holy Spirit. And one of his great ministries, the Holy Spirit that is, is he will guide you in the moment to do this or that, to make the decision that would be in accordance with God. You know how he does that? 
In Ephesians chapter 6, we read about the armor of God, the abilities God has given to us, the, the gifts and ways to protect ourselves, ways to live our life that are holy and pleasing in his sight. There is one offensive weapon given in that passage in Ephesians chapter 6, and it's this, the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. You see, the more you spend time in God's Word, reading it, understanding it, even if you feel like it's not sinking in. Those verses the Holy Spirit can pick out at just the right moment in your life when you need them, when you can't go to that shelf to find that dusty Bible. It's already in your mind and in your heart. The Holy Spirit touches it and says, this is how you should act in this situation. But it's got to be in there first. And so we need to be in the Word, filling ourselves with the Word, so that the Holy Spirit can use that ability, that sword. The sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. If you don't have any Word of God in your mind and in your heart, he is powerless almost to help you. The, the endeavorance is on us to learn it. The psalmist said, Psalm 119, Thy word have I hid in my heart that I may not sin against you. The word that was tucked in there. And so it's so important that you're here this morning. It's so important that you are saturating your life with, with God's word in, in song, in podcast, in reading, in, in just throughout your week, filling it in. And, and the story, I'm reminded of a story that someone shared one time ago, illustrating this of a, a man who was, who was sifting. And he was at a, a riverbed. I'm just trying to remember the details of it. He was sifting for gold or something like that. He was picking it up and the water would go through and picking it up and the water would go through and, and it kept happening. And someone was watching him and thinking like, this is pointless, like you're collecting nothing. Keeps going, keeps going. And his point was, he said, it was sometimes when we try to read God's word, we can feel like that. You know, it just goes right through us that we don't, take anything away from it. It didn't seem to have an impact on our life. But the man, when he was questioned about what he was doing and that water just going through the sieve, he said, you know, you're right. I may not be catching anything, but look how clean the sieve is. And his point was, as an encouragement to you, it's okay when you spend time with God and in his word. I don't remember anything, didn't stick anything. You know what? God's cleaning you as you're doing it. And I, I find that over and over again. With our time remaining, a few minutes, the, the greatest uh, argument I could offer you this morning on the importance of God's word is that it works. It works. Time and time again, there have been times in my life where God picks up his word, a verse, and so on, and guides me in the moment and, and changes literally the course of my life. I wanted to share a few of those examples with you this morning, not because my examples are awesome or great or anything, but because they're powerful and personal to me. And I hope that with the conviction I can share them, you can see and find for yourself that God uses his word in the moment to help. The first one's actually for my wife, Rachel. The, uh, take you back to 2007 on an Easter morning service at Carleton University. The, uh, the speaker that morning was sharing uh, a passage from Galatians chapter two uh, with a well-known verse in verse 20, I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live, yet not I, but Christ lives in me. In the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. It's tucked in up there because that's a verse I've probably heard hundreds of times. Very powerful, it's saying, I, when Christ died for my sins, it's as if I died with him. And now as I trust him with my life, it's him living in me. That's who gives me the ability. And that was the whole point of the passage that morning. But she wasn't reading that verse. Her eyes drifted down the page to the next verse. And the next verse says this, 
Galatians 2.21. I do not frustrate the grace of God, for if righteousness come by the law, then Christ is dead in vain. And if I could use my wife's words as she explained it to me again, her eyes blurred, and the only words she saw in that entire verse were, do not frustrate the grace of God. Stop playing games with God. God's getting frustrated. He's trying to reach you, because she, at that point, would, not, would say that she had not surrendered her life to Jesus Christ. And the point of the passage is one thing, but God's word is so powerful that even misreading a verse can bring you to an understanding. And God's spirit tapped her on the shoulder that morning, and she surrendered. Do not frustrate the grace of God. It was one more opportunity, and this might be your last opportunity. None of us knows when our last day on earth will be. God is trying to reach every one of us with his word, and for her that day, God's word, very powerful. The next one I'll share you, the personal example from my own life. I remember, um, it would have been 2008 or 9. I was working in a, in a co-op term, an internship with a company. It was great, loved it, uh, was finishing up my, my university, and would have loved to have gone back to that company. I remember talking to the manager. You think it'll work out? I have one more school term. Could we find a job? Well, maybe. We'll see. It wasn't working out. It just wasn't an opening. didn't seem to be lining up. So I, I looked around, interviewed for another company, found a job that I thought would see fit, and they sent me an offer. Went back to my first manager and said, well, here's the situation. I have this offer. Do you think there's any chance it'll work out for me to come here? I love working here. Would have been great. Wasn't going to work out. I said, well, I'm going to take this other one. Fair enough. No hard feelings. We moved on. Went back to school. A couple months later, that first manager said, actually, things changed, and uh, we'd really love to have you back. And uh, I don't know what they're offering you, but we want to offer you this. And I'll tell you what, it was a lot more than what Company B was offering. And I knew the job, and I knew the team, and I knew the work. I was a little uneasy with it, though, because I'd, I'd given my commitment to this other company. And he said, you know what, don't worry about it. We'll figure it out. You haven't started there. He said, I'll, I'll make it all work. And so I'm left with this dilemma. And uh, I remember distinctly reading this verse in, uh, in 1 Samuel. And it says, Them that honor me, I will honor. And they who despise me shall be lightly esteemed. And you remember what I was thinking when I read that verse? I thought, you know what? That's a verse for suckers. Because here's a situation where, yeah, maybe that applies in a lot of situations, but here I am, this job, I'm going to get paid a lot more. I love the job. I love the manager. I love the team. Everything is great about this one. The only reason to take the other one is I gave them my word. I debated about it. And I said, you know what, God? This one's on you. I'm going to stick with it. Gave him my word. Uh, so I told him, sorry, can't do it. Within a year, that first company, the guy who was coming after me, major restructuring here in Ottawa, whole team laid off. That manager who was going to make it all right, laid off, whole thing gone. And I remember reflecting at the time and saying, you know what, God, you, you, you guided my path to help me avoid a disaster. Would have burned a bridge at one company, lost my job at the other. It was just, it was one of the most vivid examples in my life. And it may mean nothing to you, but it was powerful to me where God said, you know what, standing for my way in ways that you may never understand in the moment, is always the right way. Next one. Ten years ago this month was uh, the hardest probably month of my life. I laid my mother in the ground, June 13th, 2012. I still remember she had a long battle with cancer. It was very, very hard. I'm an only child. And uh, anyway, if you've been through something like that, you know it's, it's, it's heavy times. 
And uh, there's no family like the family of God. I'll tell you that, though. There was so much support around, really uh, amazing. But if you've gone through something like that, you, you know what I mean when I say there's the rebound afterwards. In the moment, you feel really supported and loved, and then weeks and so on, everyone go, kind of goes back to their lives the way they were before, and you're kind of left, as it were, holding the bag. And I remember being really, really down and discouraged and just, just not, not doing well. And uh, I could take you back to exactly where I was, laying on a bed in Golden Lake, got up in the morning, I had my old Blackberry, uh, back when they were still, uh, still kicking. And uh, I was going through morning emails, and I received an email from a man, some of you would know, Bill Yule, uh, does a lot of speaking. He's not someone who really emails me very often at all. Um, but he emailed me that morning, said, I heard about your mother, and he said, when I thought about her, I was reminded of the words of the Lord Jesus. And he said this, he shared from John 14 and 28. He said, I'm reminded of the words of the Lord Jesus when he said, if you love me, you would rejoice. Because I said, I'm going to the Father, for my Father is greater than I. Now that verse has nothing to do with losing a loved one. The Lord was explaining to his own disciples where he was going on the last night he was with them before he was betrayed. But I'll tell you, in that moment, in that time, a verse that I'd read hundreds of times, God just changed my life, literally changed my outlook. He said, you know what? I did love her. And I do rejoice for her. She's with the Father. It doesn't make everything easy, but it, it really did. I can't describe it any other way. It really, really changed my outlook. God's word in a powerful way applied to my heart. A handful of words. The world, world wouldn't believe it. Something so simple, and yet it literally changed the direction of my life. The last one I'll share with you is from a conference I got to go to once. Uh, called the Workers and Elders Conference. It was in St. Catharines that year. It's always a challenging one because it's during the week. Got to go one time, and I remember there was a, a gentleman I'd never heard of before from uh, uh, down east. His name is Wade LeBlanc. If some of you have traveled around there, maybe you've heard of him, real gospel preacher. I'd never met him. He was walking up to the front. It was to see the scene. I don't even know how to describe it. It looked absurd. He, he had trouble walking. He had this massive briefcase. He put it up on top of the pulpit. It was anything but slick and professional and everything like that. However, what he lacked in, perhaps we would say, polish, he possessed in God's Holy Spirit. As he spoke that evening, I will never forget, on Exodus chapter 21. And uh, you say, well, what's Exodus 21? Exodus 20 was the Ten Commandments. That's kind of a big deal. Um, Exodus 21 is uh, laws about Hebrew slaves doesn't seem relevant at all to our lives, does it? Because I'm neither Hebrew nor have a slave. But as he brought it out in the passage, it talks about, well, the law was if you had a slave, they would work for you for six years. In the seventh, they were allowed to go out free, no questions asked. But that slave could also decide, you know, I love my master. I want to stay. And so his point, he, he, here's the verses in front of you. He likened it to our Christian life. Now we're not, as the first verse was, it's not a question of surrendering to Jesus Christ with my life. We believe he's my savior. But if you have done that with your life, maybe you have realized the struggle that is, you know what, we still fall sometimes. And we still struggle sometimes. And you know what, actually, sometimes I still live like I am in charge of my life. And I do what I want to do when I want to do it. And that's not the way it was supposed to be. So he said, you and your Christian life, he said, you have been granted liberty by Jesus Christ. He has freed you from the, the power, the penalty, all that of sin. And he says, as the Hebrew servant said, let me read it. If you buy a Hebrew servant 
Exodus 21, 2. Six years he shall serve. In the seventh, he shall go out. And he emphasized that phrase, free for nothing. He said, you can live your Christian life doing what you want to do and, and whatever you want, when you want to do it. But he says, your life will be valueless for God. Free, yes. Free for nothing. But on the flip side, you can say, if the servant shall plainly say, I love my master, I will not go out free. I will no longer live the life of a free man or a free woman. That was the point of his verse. He says, as a Christian, you decide. This isn't, again, a question of your forgiveness and sins and being saved. It was a question of, do you want to commit your life to saying no to certain things not sinful things, not overtly awful things, but things you just can't get involved with. I say no because I love my master. I no longer live the life of a free man or a free woman. Again, changed my life, changed my whole outlook, got me involved in a lot of things, got me out of my comfort zone, um, and many other things. So just four examples. I said that none of them may stick with you, but they were very, very powerful, literally life-changing moments for Rachel and for myself, and, and we owe to it God's word. A handful of words in the right time, this book works. And so as I read again our statement of faith, the Bible is verbally inspired by God, meaning God inspired not just thoughts, but words. He was behind the men as they wrote, those 40 people as they wrote those. So we can say it's not just his opinion. I hear that sometimes. Well, that, that was just his opinion a few thousand years ago. No, no, no. If we have a problem with what someone wrote in the Bible, it's not his opinion. We have a problem with God because God inspired those words that he penned on the page. Inerrant in the original documents. The Bible you have in front of you, as I tried to demonstrate to you, is sufficient to have all of God's truth. If you want to get into the nitty-gritty, we can go verse by verse and see the differences in this translation and this copy and so on. But at the end of the day, you come back to having to deal with many, many verses in which there is no discrepancy and we have a, a God with whom to do. And finally, and like I said, I feel the most important one, the sole authority in matters of faith and practice. How you live your life on a daily basis. Do you ever lack for guidance? Don't treat this book as that lawnmower manual on the shelf. Fill yourself with it. Read it, consume it, audio, whatever format works for you. Listen, bring in God's word. You might find it's doing nothing. In those critical moments in your life, those half dozen times when you're at a crossroads in your life, God's Spirit picks those words that are in your mind and your heart and will give you that guidance that you need. And the only reason he can do that is because it's not the words of men. It's the word of God. So let's, uh, let's pray and ask God to give us help to treat his word more seriously. Father God, we thank you for your word. Uh, we are grateful for it in a translation into a language that we can understand. Not every people group in the world enjoys that privilege. Give us the grace to treat it not as a manual on the shelf, but as the lifeblood that is necessary for every moment of our lives. We firmly believe that your word is the sole authority for matters of faith and practice. And, and Lord, you only know that we need help every single day. Thank you for our Savior, the Lord Jesus who opens to us the way and the Holy Spirit, who, who guides us to truth and picks out those verses in the right time. But it's on us to fill our minds and hearts with your word and with your truth. Give us the grace to do so. We pray for the honor and glory of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.